have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronkcom live from the Kilnarney's Public Health Studios. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. Health 411, truthful information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of health and healthcare. I'm joined in the studio today by our producer, Diamond McNellis, behind the board, and two esteemed guests. I'm here with Jamie Ludwig, who's a professor of chemistry here at Ryder University, and Shannon Pulaski, who they work with in their breast screening advocacy. And so I'm hoping they can tell me, welcome, welcome. Can you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you met and what you do? Sure, so I'm Jamie Ludwig. I am a professor here at Ryder, but I actually met Shannon just recently through an organization that we are both in together called the Young Leadership Community that is part of the Vassar Center at Penn University. We're both interested in the BRCA mutations and how it impacts a family history and a family risk of breast cancer. Hi, I'm Shannon Pulaski. I'm here from Millstone, New Jersey. I'm a attorney that practices business and contract law with a special interest in advocacy for healthcare groups specifically aimed at breast and ovarian cancer research. I became part of the Young Leadership Council at the Bassler Center and was lucky enough to meet Jamie here. We are working on a lot of things at the Bassler Center to advance the science and the treatment for people with genetic mutations such as BRCA. And so a chemist and a lawyer got together. It's an unusual match at the Bassett Center. So tell us some more what that center does. So the Bassett Center um, was started by Don and Melinda Gray, who have um, also a family connection to BRCA-related cancers. The Bassett Center is really focused on, as Shannon said, promoting the science, so doing research that's going to help to give people that carry one of these genetic mutations more options when it comes to avoiding getting cancer or treating cancer if they do develop it, but then also a major focus on advocacy, which is where Shannon and I are connected, that we really want to share our experiences within this area um, to talk more about what options people have for um, finding out about genetic risk of cancer and then dealing with that knowledge once they obtain it. And the Young Leadership Council that we're both a part of does tremendous research or did tremendous work in raising funds so that we can further this research. So we have many events where we are getting fundraising and putting that towards grants that will advance the science, whether it's in projects such as immunotherapy or other really fantastic research that's going directly to the benefit of BRCA carriers and specifically focused on young investigators in this area. So with a group of young men and women that are impacted by the BRCA mutation, we're focused on helping some of the younger researchers in this area to give them the financial support to start making inroads into research in this area. Right, and what I'm hearing from you too is the word research over and over again. So this is sort of the science that goes behind the, the screening. 
I think so. I think that's what makes Vassar Center so much fun to be a part of than some of the other advocacy groups that I like to participate in as well. They really are focused on changing the state of the science and advancing the standard of care when it comes to treatment of BRCA carriers. Excellent. And so it is, when you talk about the science, is it just about developing new screening procedures or is it new treatment procedures or is it what, it, what is the goal of this organization? I think everything. So it, there's actually been a lot of really excellent advances that have come about when it comes to um, particularly breast cancer. So whether it's screening or treatment of people that, ca that have breast cancer, there really are a lot of options available at this point. But one of the things that um, Shannon and I are both aware of is that if you do carry one of these genetic mutations, which gives you a predisposition to cancer, the options in those situations are just not great. So it involves usually disfiguring surgery and a lot of annual screening that, that men and women have to undergo to be able to try to manage their risk of cancer. And so some of the research is focused on giving people in that situation a better alternative. Penn is also really focused on producing these immunotherapy vaccines, and that's been a large focus of a lot of our grant money in the past. So what we've been able to do is create vaccines that take our own body and help it to fight against cancer. And it's phenomenal to see the progress in this area. It's a completely different turn from what was used as treatment in the past, namely chemotherapy for for patients with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or pancreatic cancer. And that's a main focus of the Basser Center and of Penn to advance that science as well. Excellent. Can you tell me a little bit about, because we today we want to focus what, you, what your main topic is, is breast cancer. Can you tell me a little bit about what breast cancer testing involves and who should be tested? So with the BRCA gene, if you have this genetic mutation. So, so let's take a step back. The BRCA gene, you're using your insider information here. You're using an acronym, <laughs> right? You, so so the, let's, let's take a step back and tell us what that is. The BRCA gene or the BRCA or the breast cancer gene is. That's a, how it got its name, right? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they used all those letters and pushed them together. Okay. So that's what we're talking about here. And a lot of people might even now, recognize is it. Is it one gene or is it actually a couple different genes? It's a couple of different genes. There's BRCA1 and BRCA2. Too. And people might be more familiar with this from Angelia Jolie's story just a couple of years ago where she learned that she had the gene and a strong family history of breast and ovarian cancer and made some pretty big decisions based upon that diagnosis. So, so what, what inspired her to get tested? And I, why should people even consider this? Should everybody consider this test or just certain kinds of people? I believe her mother had ovarian cancer, so she chose to move forward with the testing and... Do you have to have cancer in your family to be tested? Most likely, yes, you would have to have cancer. So the breast cancer gene is linked to breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So if you have a really strong family history where multiple members of your family within the same line of your family have had breast cancer, if you have family members who have had both breast and ovarian cancer in the same family. Well, as the lone male in the room, are we only, uh, before we lose our listeners in the first segment, are we only talking about male family members or a male no, connection? No, absolutely not. It's yeah. super important to understand that you, when you're taking in your family health history and you're talking to your family members, you must assess both your mother and your father's side. 
and men can carry the BRCA gene as well. And 50% they, of carriers are male. Exactly. And they are susceptible to a higher risk of both breast cancer and prostate cancer. So it's really important that men understand that they can be at risk, that they should consider genetic testing because a lot of men don't opt to go under this. So it's really important for them to know not only for themselves, but to share that information with their family members. And to your point on who would get tested then, it's just normally because it, the risk of breast and ovarian cancer are the ones that are so greatly increased with this particular genetic mutation. And so as a result, normally what you would observe is that there's a strong family history of one or both of those cancers, which would be the signal for people to get this type of testing. But there are also some other cases where that would happen. You asked if it had to be a history of cancer. There is one example that I can think of where there's not necessarily a history of cancer, and that's with the Ashkenazi Jewish population. I'm going to ask about that. <laughs> is, is everybody equally, does everyone have the same probability of carrying one of these gene mutations? They don't. And we will explain what that means in a little bit. The Ashkenazi Jewish population, I believe the stats currently are 1 in 40. That's right. Um, are going to carry this mutation, and so it's actually recommended that anybody with that ethnic background would get tested but otherwise, it's usually a family history of one of these types of cancers. Men that have breast cancer, that's an, an unusual cancer for men to get. So that um, can be another flag that would suggest possibly one of these genetic mutations in the family. It's really important to keep an eye on your family health history and understand where you're coming from, too. In my family, as we kind of dove into what was going on, it seems like maybe we might have Ashkenazi, but we didn't know because the population moved so much during that time. So you might not identify yourself as such, but... And so let, let me just define that. Ashkenazi basically means Eastern European, typically of a Jewish heritage, but not necessarily. Exactly. I came from, a, I, I believed that I was of Polish descent, and now I'm kind of learning maybe that's not exactly our full story. So it's important not to rule this out if you're not Ashkenazi and still consider what was going on in your family and what kind of cancer history you have. It is Excellent. an ethnic background and not, it doesn't mean that you have to be a geographic a, background. Absolutely. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Calamity's Public Health Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. I'm joined here in the studio with Diamond McNellis, our producer, and Dr. Jamie Lugwood, a professor of chemistry here at Ryder University, and Shannon Pulaski, an attorney and advocate and promoter of uh, health awareness and as it's related to cancer, especially breast cancer. And we were talking about sort of an introductory way of screening for these BRCA genes as um, sort of markers for the potential to get different kinds of breast cancer. And we thought we, in this segment, we would talk a little bit about what that means, what a ge genetic susceptibility to breast cancer might mean. What does it mean if somebody has a genetic susceptibility in terms of what's happening in the cells of their body? And in this case, in the, these organs that you mentioned, ov ovaries, breasts, prostate. So I'll just start by saying a little bit of a statistic and I'll, help, I'll lean on Jamie to help me with some of that biology. But if you have one of these gene mutations, 
you're facing up to a 72% chance of, of having breast cancer in your lifetime and up to a 40% chance of ovarian cancer. A way to step to back put and put that into context with exactly. what the general population is facing with those. 12%. If you're of average risk, meaning that you don't have that family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, you're facing up to 12% or one in eight women. For breast cancer. For breast and then cancer. for ovarian cancer, it's actually quite rare. It's it's unusual to have ovarian yes, cancer. Yes, I think it's, it's one in 67. Yeah, it's less than 2%. Exactly. So this is a substantial increase in risk. And what's important to understand about ovarian cancer is there's no good screening. So if we can identify these women that are at high risk for breast and ovarian cancer through this gene, we can offer them much stronger, better preventative measures to take. So let's talk a little bit about what this gene does. Now, is this a gene that only shows up in people who are susceptible for cancer? Uh, no. So when we talk about the BRCA mutation, you're actually talking about a healthy gene that has been mutated in a way that has taken away its its proper function. And so, so what uh, is the proper function of the, the, the gene that has the, uh, the name the breast cancer gene or gene? So both BRCA1 and BRCA2, they're really um, technically unrelated genes that are coding for proteins, but, but they both have the goal of working as tumor suppressor proteins. They actually are involved in fixing DNA when there are issues with DNA that it gets damaged over the course of the cell's lifetime. These proteins are responsible for coming in and correcting some of those mistakes that okay, may happen. Okay, so what, not being in that world, what I know about cells and DNA is that DNA is this double helix. And along that double helix, there are nucleotides. And sometimes, as part of the, using the word cell cycle, sort of the normal lifetime of a cell, is, and a cell is doing what it's going to do, at some point it might divide. And then for that to happen, its DNA has to be duplicated. So you have a daughter cell that's the same as the mother cell. But sometimes that in that duplication process, some of those nucleotides that are sort of the rungs on the ladder of the DNA might be damaged or, or might not be copied correctly. And so when you say that the, BRAC, the BRCA gene is a tumor suppressor gene, how does it fit into that sort of idea of what cells are doing? Exactly. So every time these cells are dividing, they are duplicating the DNA, and that, that process is susceptible to damage. It can come from environmental factors or genetic factors that can lead to mistakes that happen in that duplication right. process. And the duplication is a normal part of a cell's exactly. life. Absolutely, right? Exactly. And, and the mistakes are normal, too. Correct. It's, it's common that mistakes occur And when occur we talk about process. cancer, what we're talking about is a cell that sort of left its the realm of being a normal cell, whatever it's going to be, and it has started to divide out of control. Right. And that's what we call a tumor, and that's what we call cancer. And that's what can happen here is if the BRCA gene is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Exactly. Did I, did I get it right? Yeah, exactly. Sounds perfect. <laughs> um, so you get two copies of this BRCA gene. Um, you, you inherit one from mom and one from dad. And really, you, you just need one healthy copy that can make this tumor suppressor protein and that it can be responsible for um, correcting these mistakes as they occur. But if you, you in, inherit one bad copy, the problem with that is that your, your healthy copy of the gene could ultimately become damaged over the course of your lifetime. And if that second copy becomes damaged, you already have one bad copy that you inherited, and that second copy gets damaged, now you just don't have this particular mechanism for fixing DNA mistakes that might take place. No, just so to be straight, the, the BRCA, is, is that the only mechanism cells normally have for fixing 
No. Damaged nucleotide sequences, no. or are there others as well? Our cells are really smart, right? So they have a lot of different mechanisms in so, place. So it's like biology. Anything that's really important is not yes, going to be there, just limited are, to one thing. There are backups and backups for the backups. But what happens is if you, you damage one of those correcting proteins, one of those tumor suppressor proteins, then that means that it's a little bit easier for those mistakes to develop in that cell. And then, and then as they, mistakes start to accumulate, yeah, that's so, where you ultimately so that end now up the cancer. daughter cells are now damaged just like right. the mother cell was because this mistake wasn't fixed. Right. And then one mistake leads to another mistake. And it's really a, a, a long strand of mistakes that can take place. Sort of like a that rumor mill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that can lead to cancer. And so I don't think it's fully understood why there are certain tissues where this is much more likely to occur. So we know that the BRCA mutations are linked particularly to breast and ovarian cancer. There are additional cancers. So Shannon touched on cancers that males have to be aware of with prostate cancer. Pancreatic cancer is another one. Melanoma has been linked to these mutations. It's not fully understood why there are certain tissues where that damage is more likely to occur than in others. Um, but for whatever the reason is, if you carry one of these genetic mutations, you tend to be particularly susceptible to certain types of cancers. And as Shannon pointed out with the statistics, the numbers can really be pretty daunting, which means that you know, if you, you carry one of these mutations, you have decisions that you need to make And, and your you're health. using the words mutations in the plural, because there are two BRCA genes. Correct. BRCA1, BRCA2. They happen to be two genes of the same name, but they're actually found on different chromosomes, if, if, I, if I've got Correct. it right. Mm -hmm. And so they do sort of the same repair mechanisms, but they probably do it in different ways. Right. Kind of excellent. Yeah, they're, they're pretty unrelated to each other, except for their connection that, yes, they're involved in DNA repair, and then also, importantly, that they... Um, have high prevalence in breast cancers. Right, and so they're both what some people have called the guardians of your DNA. Yes. We all need the guardians, right? Along with P53, which some people might have heard around because that was the molecule of the year a few years ago. A few um, years back. <laughs> <I guess laughs> a while back I'm, now. I'm dating myself <laughs> yeah. now. You guys are, are, are making fun. So, so Diamond's looking at me funny. So Diamond, as a biology major here, what questions do you have for, about DNA repair and tumor suppressor genes? Actually, it was just this morning that I was learning about the P53 mutation mm -hmm. in my senior seminar, mm. so that's pretty interesting. But my grandmother actually passed away of ovarian cancer, but they weren't sure if it started in her colon or not, but it was the ovarian cancer that really got to her. And my mom and my aunt were both tested, and they do not have it. So I don't really know how, I don't know if this is related, but how you how you would distinguish or if maybe she had the gene and just, or the mutation, and luckily they didn't get it? You know, a thing to consider here is when did they have that testing? Because the test, the state of testing has changed so much just in the past five years even. So if they had been tested 10 or um, even earlier than that years ago, then what we're looking at now might be a different ball game. So it's, it would be a good idea to go back into your healthcare professional and talk to them about, you know, what, happened then and what it looks like now, because what they're recommending now is if you have ovarian cancer, that you be tested, that you go under and do genetic testing. It's very much linked. I think that it is maybe one in four ovarian cancers, and I might be wrong on that stat, um, is linked to some type of genetic mutation. So it might not just be the BRCA gene mutation that we're talking about. It could also be Lynch syndrome or a couple of others. So you might want to consider, or your mom uh, might want to consider going in and uh, 
looking for a full panel uh, of genetic testing because that would give them a more uh, full picture of what is actually the landscape of your genetic health. I, I, what I was trying to get out of Diamond was the idea that we were talking about tumor suppressor genes as things that can actually repair damaged DNA to keep tumors and cancers from developing. In terms of biology, there's a whole set of other kinds of genes called oncogenes. And they, they work a little bit differently. Those are actually the kinds of genes that would be turned on to cause a cell to stop being whatever the cell is gonna be and become a tumor and cancer. And so when people talk about genetic susceptibility to, to cancer or genetic markers, sometimes they're talking about tumor suppressor genes, sometimes they would be talking about oncogenes, and with your question about your grandma, you're actually bringing up the idea is that not all cancers are genetic. Sometimes there are environmental causes. So you're not doomed by your DNA of getting cancer or not getting cancer, even in terms of these markers that we're talking about, the BRCA genes, even if you have one of the mutations in this tumor suppressor gene, um, we're not, you're, you're not doomed to having breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or prostate cancer um, later on in your life. And that, that's what we're going to get to. Hold on one second there, Dr. Ludwig. <laughs> we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Kilnarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. We're having a conversation here about cancer and breast cancer specifically. We're here with Jamie Ludwig, professor of chemistry, uh, biochemistry and physics, to get the complete name of the department here at Ryder. You missed computer science. And, and computer science now, it's a catch-all. And, and Sharon Pulaski, founder of Proactive Genes an advocate for breast cancer screening. In the last segment, we were talking a little bit about the biology of what it means to have a, a, a normal cell become an abnormal cell that becomes a tumor and eventually becomes cancer. And Dr. Ludwig, you, I cut you off right there at the end, so please now tell us what you're gonna say. I just wanted to build on what Shannon was saying um, in, in response to Diamond's mention of her grandmother having ovarian cancer. There are many different examples of mutations within either of these genes, within BRCA1 or 2. Some of those mutations don't mean anything in terms of the function of the protein, and, and the, func the protein's going to be perfectly fine, and the mutation has no impact. Other so, so the mutations in the genes, bottom line, do not always result in cancer. Not always. So our genetics are constantly under siege from, again, environmental and, and genetic factors. And so damage occurs, and that's where our cells are so smart. They, they came in ready to kind of combat that. And so there are ways that sometimes that damage doesn't even have to have any sort of an impact on, on the protein function. But then other times... Relatively small damage can have a really big impact, and it just depends. So it's critical to know specifics about the type of mutation that somebody is carrying. It's also important to recognize that it's not just the BRCA mutation. So those are the two that have been really well studied that have this really, really strong link to breast and ovarian cancer. But I think the latest report came out that there are around 160 total genes that have been linked to these types of cancers. And it's just not understood at this point exactly what level that risk is and what's probably most likely, Jonathan, you made the point that you can have a genetic mutation and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's gonna result in cancer. 
it's probably much more likely that there are multiple different types of genetic mutations that even a single patient might have. And so it's really the combination of all of that together. Right. So, and sometimes what they call the multiple hit hypothesis right, of tumor exactly. development. It's, it's is not either a, a single mutation might not do it, but several mutations along with the right environmental factors. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we can, we can talk about what that means. And there's also the time factor. How, you're born with these genes. And a lot of the, the cancers, you know, they tend not to, the ones we're mentioning, tend not to be cancers of young people. They tend to be cancers that tend to show up in an older population, which is something, which is, I want to touch on that on, on the next segment. You know, we want to, we want to bring Shannon back into this. She's being very quiet there and very, very, <laughs> very, very polite, but I can tell you're itching to say something. Oh, I'm, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> You guys have the biology down to a, to a science. That's my joke. Uh, you know, I guess that I, from more of an advocacy perspective, you know, while these genes might not necessarily result in a cancer uh, diagnosis, the, the, the chances of that happening are substantially increased. So it's, it's, it's good for these people to really identify that they have the susceptibility and undergo either surveillance or preventative surgeries to make sure that they're healthy and strong and here for a long time to come. And just because the gene hasn't been linked to cancer, so just because a specific mutation is not currently associated with an increased risk in cancer, that could be that those statistics just haven't been developed yet, that it's not been established that that particular mutation does increase your risk. There's still unknowns about this. This has been well studied, but it, you know, these, these genes were only discovered in the 90s, so we're not talking about science that has been around since you know, the early 50s or something like that. So there's still a lot of active research in this area, a lot to know. Um, we're really just breaking into and that, that That's an important, one of the re that's a very important thing because one of the things that we want to do here on Health 411, why we started it, was to give people some basis on how to evaluate these sort of claims and how to evaluate things. And what, what we're going to see over and over again is we're not talking about biological certainties. We're talking about probabilities and statistics. Um, so being an educated consumer of these statistics becomes a, a very, very important thing. And you're not doomed by your DNA. That These are just sort of markers. It's, it's helpful information. I think any information you can gather will help you become a more powerful advocate to, for yourself as you stepped into a doctor's office. So you can effectively communicate with them about what's going on with your past history so that you can move forward and make sure that you're implementing um, very strong surveillance plans for yourself and, and asking for the type of testing um, surveillance that you need as a patient. So what kind of things would one expect to have? A, let's say assuming you decide to get screened and you come back with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, mutation what kinds of things might a, a patient expect from his or her physician? Before I jump into that, I also want to mention you might come back with a BRCA1 a BRCA2 or some other genetic mutation, or you could also come back with a variant of unknown significance, which is something that Jamie was referring to a little bit earlier. Uh, the, the science is moving so fast, and we're gathering data at a rapid pace, but all of the specific mutation have not been fully recognized um, on a very definite level yet. So if you come back with a variant of unknown significance or a VUS, that's something to keep your eye on and really go back and continuously reassess whether it's through genetic testing or consulting your healthcare professional because it might be different in a year, two, or five years from now about what your recommendations as a patient will be. 
So if you do come back with one of those things, do you have to now wait until a tumor develops or are there things that can be done? Absolutely not. The, the whole point to the power of science and the power of knowledge is that you don't have to sit around and wait. You, you have options. So one of the things that you would consider is what is your actual family history of these types of cancers? So if you've had breast cancer, ovarian cancer in the family, what age were those cancers found? That can have an impact on when recommendations will be made for you in terms of what your options are. Neither of us are genetic counselors, and so I think our first comment on this would probably be that anybody that finds out that they have a genetic predisposition to any type of illness, particularly cancer, their first step should always be to talk to a genetic counselor they have the expertise to be able to guide them in the right direction in terms of what their next steps should be. Once that conversation takes place, the the options that you're going to be given are increased surveillance, like Shannon was mentioning. There are ways to try and catch cancers basically as early as possible. The earlier that you detect the cancer, the better your chances are that you're going to be able to beat the cancer and have a long, healthy, normal life. And then there are prophylactic surgeries. That means a preventative surgery that you would And that that was, you mentioned Angelina Jolie earlier, and and that was the route that she decided to go. Yes. She elected to have a double mastectomy, and I believe she had an oophorectomy as well. She did, yes, recently. Oophorectomy means an ovary. She had her, so she would have had what's called a salpingo oophorectomy, which is removing both her fallopian tubes and her ovaries. And so basically removing any of the tissue that we know is susceptible to this type of cancer. There are a lot of considerations. So again, we're not genetic counselors, and that's something that your genetic counselor would want to discuss with you, because there are things that you have to consider with those surgeries. That's where, you know, we're we're so impressed by Basser and focused on helping Basser achieve its mission. Because if you do find out that you carry one of these genetic mutations, that can mean that you have you have options, but they can be limited options too. And right. so our goal is that that's going to open up more. You're going to have more avenues. So are there, are there any non-surgical options that you guys know about? Oh, absolutely. So you can, well, let me say, absolutely when it comes to breast health, but when it comes to ovarian health, it's a different story. And it's much harder to do surveillance because there's just not a good test. Some doctors will opt to do something called a CA-125 blood test, or they'll do transvaginal ultrasounds. But the state of that standard of care is moving as well. And some doctors are no longer recommending it, believing that it leads to high anxiety and false positives, and it's just not the route that they're recommending. So it's something that's very difficult to be proactive about unless you're considering maybe one of these surgeries. There are drugs as well. Um, oh, so right. you can take um, preventative chemotherapy, so I believe it's tamoxifen. Tamoxifen right, is one of them. That is used, right. um, that can be used in the case of breast cancer. I don't know right. if that's used for ovarian cancer. The biggest thing, actually, to be preventative about ovarian cancer that you can actually do is take birth control pills. Birth control pills can lower your risk of ovarian cancer up to 50% if taken, uh, I think it's five to 10 years or five years. specifically oral contraceptives. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's, th- that's something that you really do need to talk to your healthcare provider about because you want to weigh the risk and the benefits yeah. of taking a birth control pill against your own health history. Right. And, and like with so many things about health, it's not all or none. Exactly. You're dealing with probabilities. You have to make judgments. 
and decisions. And everybody's situation will be different. different. So again, genetic counselors are great resources to be able to help you make those decisions. You know, I I loved actually speaking to my genetic counselor. It was something where I think the the science folks in the room would really appreciate it too, because she sat down and walked me through all those kind of percentages. And I could see stats about, you know, at this age, your percentage is this, at this age, your percentage is this. And I could kind of map it out and get a full picture for myself. So you have to be an informed consumer to make make your decisions. What do you think about the, the, so much out there on the internet, a lot of it has to do with diet and cancer. I think that plays a role for sure that, you know, there is definitely environmental impact to your health and doing these kind of damaging behaviors will, will have an impact. But if you have one of these genetic susceptibilities, it's just such a greater risk and something that's probably beyond your control about what's going on inside of your body. I think I would argue the opposite point. I, I do think your diet has a really big impact. Um, unfortunately, as a red wine consumer, <laughs> um, that is not my favorite you thing. Yes, but for breast cancer, there um, have been studies that show a pretty decent link to um, red wine consumption and breast cancer, and I think particularly with BRCA carriers. So we don't we don't understand the the connections between diet and a lot of illness as well as we would like to. I think that, you know, it's a also an important area of research, but I do think you should consider your diet in, in any case, regardless of your genetic status. Excellent. So we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Colorado Public Health Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Carp here with Shannon Pulaski, founder and leader of Proactive Genes, and Dr. Jamie Ludwig, professor of chemistry, biochemistry, physics, and computer science here at Ryder University. Um, and we were just, uh, in, during the break, we were talking a little bit about Shannon's advocacy at Proactive Genes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, the, and um, the book you wrote? Oh, I would love to. Thank you so much for that opportunity. So Proactive Genes is a, a website and a blog that I just launched just a couple weeks ago, really, and it's been a phenomenal experience. Um, it came out of this book I wrote called Mom's Genes. Mom's Genes is a book I wrote with my children. So I was diagnosed with the BRCA1 gene in my 20s. My daughters were four months old when I learned that I had the gene. So at that time, I didn't really have to talk very much with them because they didn't really understand what was going on. But now they're seven, and that has created the need to really talk more about what's going on in our family. So we sat down and we start to talk about genetics, a big conversation for seven-year-olds, but I was trying to make it in a way that's accessible and manageable for them to understand risk and to implement healthy lifestyle behaviors at a young age, to really understand the importance of effectively communicating with your doctors and, and really understanding that. So we sat down, we drew some pictures, we tried to illustrate a gene. That's no easy task, <laughs> but we, we managed, especially through seven-year-old eyes, and uh, we created this book, Mom's Genes. And then Proactive Genes is a website where parents can come together and share their stories 
about being predisposed to hereditary conditions and what it's like to raise children, knowing that they have this disposition and what, what they're doing and how they're being proactive. Excellent. Thank you. And good luck with your book. Thank you. Expect to see you on the, uh, maybe you'll be on Oprah soon. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> That'd be wonderful. You're bringing, you're bringing up a very, very, very important point about genetic testing that I would like to discuss in, this, in, our, in our last segment, is that when you were screened and you came up with, you get a positive result for one of these mutations, you sort of took it on. Right. You, you became an advocate. You wanted to talk about it. You know, you wrote a book about it. You talk about it with your children. Not everybody would take that same approach. And, um, and, and lack of a better term, what's in my head is sort of the moral hazard of genetic testing, because not everybody would respond in, in the same way. You know, some people would fear like on the biggest sense, another eugenics movement, which happened at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. Some people might feel that insurance companies might not insure them if there was a record somewhere of their genetic testing. Some people might feel that they wouldn't get a job or be fired from their job because of their genetic background. And I'm just wondering, what do you, I mean, what do you say? Because you took it on one way. You're, you're open about it. You're about communication. Not everybody would be. I think all of those concerns that you listed are ones that I personally felt and was worried about and am still to a degree worried about all of that. It's, this isn't an easy test to be out there and to to be public and to talk about it. But at the same time, I look to my daughters and my son, and I want to advance the science. I want to get people aware. Every time I sit down to have a conversation about that, I usually look around and see maybe, you know, two or three people in the room who have that kind of family history. And it always pushes me to to ask those questions for them. It, It just became a point where I no longer felt like I could be silent about it and want it to make a difference. And I think um, I I agree that anybody that finds out they have a genetic predisposition to any sort of an illness, that's a scary thing to find out. I think you do worry about what would happen at your job if everybody found out you you have all of those concerns. Um, And in some ways you want to stick your head in the sand. But to Shannon's point, I think, you know, it's important to try to advance the science so that the next generation isn't having to make some of the same decisions that we've had to make. And I think that there's also a lot of power in being able to learn from other people that have been in the same situation and find out you know, how they make decisions based on their genetic history. Yeah, but one, of, one of the things I always bring up when, I, when I'm teaching some of my classes, and I, I talk about, and we'll talk about our kids sometimes. Um, I have a daughter who now is in her 20s. When she was in high school, I used to ask the class, you know, these screens are out there for these genetic, you know, markers for potential of developing cancers in your 40s, 50s, 60s. Should I have a young, my young daughter screened? And if she comes out positive, does that change her entire life? Do I... Do I tell her about it? Because there's a right to know. I mean, a, a pure libertarian would say there's also a right not to know, you know, and, and, and like and, and if she changes her life, maybe she will just, you know, not have children, not get married, not do things that if she didn't know, she would just go ahead and do. And we're not talking about certainties. We're talking about probabilities of things happening 40, 50 years from now. I think you can have the philosophical debate about it, but I think one thing that is unique specifically about the mutations that we're discussing, the BRCA mutations, is that there are legitimate 
paths that you can take that will just essentially erase your risk of those types of cancers. So I know that every woman is going to have a different approach if they find out that they have this type of genetic predisposition. But I think one thing that um, is a little different than finding out if you have a genetic predispo predisposition to Alzheimer's is that if you find out you have one of these genetic mutations, you have the ability to have the surgeries that we've talked about, which essentially erase your risk of getting these cancers. You have less risk than the general population of getting these cancers. And so I think that that, you know, at least in my situation, that's a powerful motivator to want the knowledge. And I know that that's not right for everybody, but for me, that was a really powerful um, approach. I can't say with any certainty if, if I found out there was um, that we had the genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's, I can't say with any certainty that I would have that test. I think that this was a different situation for me. I would say that I think that the decision to have genetic testing is an extremely personal one because everything that you outlined, considerations about childbearing and you know how to family plan and whether or not to go under these prophylactic surgeries are big decisions. What I always advocate for is to be an educated patient, to sit down and really understand your family history and what's going on and what these genetic, genetic mutations look like. And then digest that information and go for genetic counseling and testing if you think it's right for you, if you think that you can uh, move and cope with this kind of knowledge. Personally, I found having this knowledge extremely empowering because while it was scary at first, I was able to come up with a very proactive plan and make sure that I'm healthy and here for my children in the future. But I do appreciate how personal every single one of these decisions is for for fa families as a whole. Do you, do you think your decision to talk about it with your children and write a book um, is going to change their behavior and change I, their lives? I do. And, you know, it's something Does that worry I'm, you or do you think it's a positive thing? It's something that I'm very conscious about with my project at Proactive Genes. The idea and the concept is to offer information for families to start a conversation about family health history at a young age. And it could be any family. It doesn't necessarily have to be a BRCA1 family. It could be family with history of heart disease or other you know, hereditary conditions. But to offer information at a level that is age appropriate and paces it so that they can understand those concepts at a appropriate level. And then as they grow to offer more resources. So the original book, Mom's Genes, isn't a deep dive, intimidating read. It's, it's fun, it's light, it's a picture book. And then as my daughters grow and there becomes a need to have a deeper conversation about what's going on in my health and what I think that they would benefit from, I can offer that information at that level and really you know, work with genetic counselors about developing this information so that it's age appropriate always. I, I think you just hit on something very important is, is that talking to people who are professionals are used to dealing with this because there are case reports of somebody getting a positive test and it just going bad, not just for them, but for their entire family. My personal experience was a horrible one that did not involve getting a genetic counselor at the start. And so it's highly recommended that you speak with a professional that knows about genetic predisposition to cancer. Um, I think it makes you even such turn a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you have to be aware of your family too, because not everybody's going to want that information. And yes. you have to sort of, a, you know, dole it out carefully yes. because of what's going to happen. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com live from the Colonies Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. 
thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Roddy University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.